Back in episode 46, I vented about the deceptive labeling practices of dog food companies that make comparing the price of one brand to another nearly impossible. I went on to describe my strategy for finding a good value, but John Howard of Kinetic Performance Dog Food listened to that episode, and he's here to add some depth to my superficial solution. Welcome to Farm Dog. This is Farm Dog, the podcast about the working dogs of farming, ranching, homesteading, and rural living. Farm Dog is presented by Goats on the Go, a national network of independent business owners who provide sustainable weed and brush control for their customers using goats. Want to put goats to work on your vegetation problem? Interested in launching your own goat grazing business? The place to start is goatsonthego.com. Welcome to Farm Dog. I'm Aaron Steele, your host for today. I am so pleased that you've joined us. As always, I just put out a reminder there that you can find more information about our podcast, including back episodes, also a way to contact us with comments or questions about this episode or other episodes on farmdogpodcast.com. So go check that out. You can even leave us a voice recording there. And if you are so bold as to do that, there's a good chance you'll end up being a part of our podcast in the future. So uh, please look us up at farmdogpodcast.com. Um, and with that, I want to introduce to you today's guest, John Howard. John is with Kinetic Performance Dog Food, and I am thrilled to have somebody to chat about with dog food. So welcome, John. How are you? I'm doing great, Aaron. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I, I'll, I'm happy to talk about dog food. It's kind of what we do uh, every day of, of every week. And, uh, you know, we, it's, it's a close passion of ours, obviously, with our dogs and everything that we do around that it's it's not just uh you know it's not just work it's it's a lifestyle thing because um you know you you work with working dogs well we we do the same ours are hunting but it sounds like you got some background there too so yeah let's let's get into it a little bit beautiful well why don't you tell us a little bit not everybody ends up being an executive of a dog food company so why don't you tell us a little bit about what your career path, how your career path led you to uh, uh, being a part of Kinetic and then tell us about Kinetic generally and why you saw a, a need and an opportunity for another food on the dog food shelves at the stores. Yeah, so I actually, um, and Kinetic, I'm one of the owners, um, the co-owner, my business partner, his name is Dave Dewerson. And we actually met, we were both working for another animal nutrition company. And this has been, oh, I guess we left there in around, around 2010. Um, he was more on the sales and distribution side. I was more on the marketing and nutrition side. And just really, you know, love the business. I mean, anytime you can talk to someone about their dogs, um, you're rarely going to have a bad conversation. Everybody loves their dogs and, you know, brags on them and, <clears throat> and is just fascinated to talk about them. Um, we both left there for different reasons. Um, I went off to do, to start a different company more on the marketing side and him, um, doing some consulting work and also helping out with his wife, some stuff his wife was doing um, on a business side, but we just missed the business. So, mm. um, you know, we got together just more of a social type of activity and like, man, we just really missed the business. So, you know, we started talking and felt like we had some unfinished business, you know, there's still things to do. And, and, um, and I, you and I have talked a little bit, but my, my background, um, is really more in the, on, in the dog world is really more on the hunting side. 
And I just felt like I wasn't, you know, I didn't really have a product that I love that was out there in the marketplace. And I said, you know what, I think we can do this better and, you know, just build it specifically for that niche. So that's really how we got back into the business and said, hey, we're going to start a company. And we wanted to focus, you know, you, you see that there are so many companies and they have, you know, 150 different formulas and and something for every type of animal. And really, we wanted to focus on the, the really active dogs. So mm. dogs that are under stress, that have um, nutritional needs that are dictated by the activity levels that they're experiencing, probably more than anything. And that's not the only source of stress, but that, you know, extreme activity can cause a lot of other stress type symptoms. So I wanted something that was going to work great for our dogs, um, as well as, you know, to kind of meet the needs of any other kind of dogs that are out there that probably were getting, um, I'd say just less than optimal, um, nutritional matches for their activities. And, you know, I heard you say something, I, you know, I listened to your, to your podcast talking about dog food. And one of the things that you said, and we absolutely support this, you said, there's no food out there that works for every dog. You know, every dog is different, just like, you know, they're just like us. We all have different, you know, different dietary needs and our metabolism's a little bit different. And, you know, you and I could eat the same diet and you'd look like a Greek God and I'd look like Jabba the Hutt, you know, it's just, <laughs> you know, it just, it can be that way. So, you know, we can't, you know, we individually can't solve for every dog and no company can, um, but we wanted to try to do the best we could for dogs that need to be able to get extra energy and extra nutrients to support an extremely active lifestyle. Um, and that's, that's where we remain. We really haven't veered from that. Uh, I think we started, we probably had our first formulas um, and started doing feeding trials in late 2011 and um, really tested them across a, a variety of, of breeds, whether working or sporting. Um, in probably five or six different states, we were, you know, feeding in a kennel environment, feeding in a home environment, and we didn't start to sell then uh, to the general public until probably 2014. It was early 2014, so roughly nine years ago um, that we really launched to the broader, you know, public marketplace. So that's kind of how we got into it. Um, luckily, we had some we had some good partners, and from past industry experience. Um, had some great contacts on the formulation side and the ingredient side and, and, you know, manufacturing. So we were able to kind of get in bootstrap some development and then just do a lot of testing. And that's, that's what took longer than anything. I mean, you, you can crack up a formula and have it ready to do a test run within a couple of weeks with, you know, if you've got a good basis to start, but you got to put it, you got to put it in the dogs and, you know, one bag's not enough. You need to, you know, test it over a couple months just to see the adjustments. And then if you're looking to do something long-term with a, you know, with a line of food like our Kinetic brand, you want to test it a little bit longer than that. So we, mm. we were probably two and a half years of just feeding different dogs. And we might make a little minor tweak here or there um, to address some shortcoming or just some improvement. And then we'd you know, test it again and feed it some more. So we started off with one, you know, one kind of basic formula, and then it's expanded into four 
Um, it's a line of four dry kibbles and three supplements. And then we have another one that's under development um, that we're just, uh, we're just starting to test right now. Um, so yeah, we're, I mean, and we're not, you know, again, we don't intend to be one of those, have a food for every dog. Um, we've got four formulas in, in our dog food side and, you know, it's gonna, it's great for the working active sporting dog. If you've got a couch potato dog, that's just not doing much. Our food is probably not going to be the right fit for you. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's, that's kind of how we got where we are now. <laughs> okay, great. Um, you, you mentioned something j- there that just made me think about, um, people, <laughs> um, like all of the products in the convenience store that are geared toward probably high-end athletes, I'm thinking of like Gatorade and that sort of thing. And I'm thinking about how many people out there actually work or exercise hard enough on a daily basis that they actually need to replace electrolytes. And <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, yeah, small. <laughs> it's small, but there's tons and tons of people buying Gatorade and uh, other, you know, supplements, a- athletic um, exercise supplements and that sort of thing. And so I'm wondering, um, since you mostly target active dogs, do you see out there in the world that there are there's a tendency among consumers to buy their buy food based on the perception of their dog <laughs> based on rather than the actual activity level of the dog? So like I've got a Border Collie. It doesn't do anything but sit on my couch, but doggone it, a Border Collie is an active dog, so it needs <laughs> kinetic performance dog food. Um, just at how, what, what's the size of the market for truly active working dogs that need um, a select type of food that really matches their activity level? Oh, that's a, that is a great question. That is one, now we do, and I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit to so why I know this so readily. Um, we do nutrition if small scale, large scale nutrition training courses, seminars, mm. um, sometimes at, at large events, I know where there's a bunch of working dog people there, sometimes small or more classroom settings at specific kennels or, or police departments or what have you. But one of the main things we always hit on, and this will, this will lead us a little bit into kind of some of your industry discussion, um, the true population of active, you know, and I say active, I mean, being used in a, in a somewhat, you know, medium to high intensity working environment. So a working dog that's actually working, whether it's hunting, um, security, police, military, but an actually professionally engaged working or hunting dog is about, and it's hard to get this data because some of it's government, but maybe half a million dogs. Now, when you say, okay, well, how many, you know, our total dog population, and I'll use round numbers, is roughly 90 million in the U.S. So w- less than 1% of the dogs in, in the market really need your Gatorade level nutritional precision <laughs> to meet their needs. Um, now, that's not to say there aren't any active dogs, because I will say, and part of the reason I'd say that segment is is growing and expanding um, there are a lot more dogs that maybe aren't really working, but they've become extremely active and people 
I mean, to a degree, to a, a, a fairly large degree, people will humanize their dogs and their relationship with their dogs. And that can be bad when it comes to, you know, attributing nutritional requirements to the dog, but it can be really good with regard to people just want to do more stuff with their dogs. Mm. So there are all kinds of sports. I mean, there are some that have grown just incredibly over the past 15 or 20 years. You think about, you know, agility and uh, dock diving and, you know, fly ball and disc dogs. And I mean, there's barn hunts and there's, I mean, there's, there's associations of people, even in urban environments. I saw a video of, of these people that own like apartment dogs, like small rat terriers and Yorkies and stuff where they have clubs where they'll go out and hunt rats in the streets of New York at night. Right. So, I mean, you don't have to have, you know, a, a working border collie or a hunting Labrador retriever in order to make that dog, you know, go out and be pretty darn active and put them under activity stress. So, you know, to, to back to the, it's less than 1% of the total population that I would say are core working dogs and working breeds within that. But there, it's a growing need for people that, that do have dogs that, that are pretty active and they're going to have the same kind of joint stress and, and muscle damage because they're very active. I mean, jumping off a dock, especially some of these, some of these high level ones um, where they go for height, that can put some pretty good stress on a dog hitting the water as often as they do. And I mean, we've got one, one lab that she's absolute insane chasing a bumper into water, no matter time of year, she would go out and jump for four hours straight. If you'd throw her the thing and she, she'd jump so hard her tail would get bruised. So you just had to stop her and hide the bumper. So she'd quit wanting to chase it. But it's a, it is definitely something that, you know, that couch dog that's not doing anything, Aaron, it, they don't need specialized diet or, or if they do, it's probably a lower calorie, higher fiber diet, you know, something to yeah. fill them up, but not bloat them up, you know, with, with weight, but it's not a huge population. I, yeah. I suspect that American consumers uh, tend to make purchase decisions about something like dog food based on um the breed of the dog and whether they perceive that to be an active breed as opposed to really the activity level of the dog. And uh, I, so I, I'm a marketing guy, so this raises all sorts of marketing questions for me. So I'm loving, <laughs> I'm loving talking to you today, but um, let's take, for example, uh, somebody who jogs or runs a lot and they run with their dog. Your dog food tends to, and many others on the shelf, pictures of sporting breeds of dogs on the labels there you know lots of photos i'm looking at one on your website right now of a labrador retriever pheasant hunting right um they tend to be marketed to those folks do you think that there are some people who who don't because of that they avoid they don't make that purchase they say i'm not a hunter i'm not a rancher i don't have that kind of dog but I'm jogging six to eight miles a day with my dog. Do you, do you think that there are people who should be buying Kinetic or other high activity level dog foods, but the marketing just kind of doesn't go in their direction? Uh, I think that's, I think that's true. And part of the, part of the reason we market our product the way we do is, is to a degree to, to tell those people who have a, you know, again, a dog that's not active, this is probably not right for you. Yeah. Now, because we have had circumstances and, you know, I've spoken to people that they're like, well, my dog, well, I'll, I'll put it to your running scenario. You said you talk about running and 
that's another scenario we talk about a lot of times. If you're a mar- you know, if you're a distance runner, you're going out training for marathons or half marathons, and you're going out and running, you know, a ten mile a day training run. What, what do you do? You carb load, you know, but it's simple carbohydrates. So you don't put a bunch of fiber in that diet because if you put if you eat a high fiber diet and then go out and do ten mile training runs, you're going to have to make multiple stops <laughs> to either use the restroom or to change clothes because high fiber in that type of training environment does not work. Um, we do use some of those same principles in, in our formulation development. Again, dogs and humans don't have the same nutritional requirements, but if you put a high fiber diet in a dog like mine that might go out and, you know, even on a morning hunt, we'll go out and run 25 miles. They're going to stop. I mean, for the first 15, 20 minutes they're hunting, they're going to be stopping and, and, and going to the bathroom. So, while I do think we we may push some away that that we could maybe feed, we also want to make sure, you know, if you feed a high a concentrated nutrient diet, whether it's ours or someone else's, to a dog that's not active, they're probably going to have a little bit more difficulty going to the bathroom than you'd normally want. But more importantly, they're going to swell up. I mean, they're going to get they're going to gain weight unless unless you feed a very small amount of that type of diet and. That's our probably our biggest concern with our food. It's intended to be fed in small amounts, so mm. that you don't have to put a lot of um, a lot of mass into the stomach of a dog that's going to be working. Uh, so we would be I, we'd rather lose you know turn away some people um, that maybe could benefit from it rather than put it in too many dogs that are are probably not well suited to it. Mm. But you know our active formula, which is it any active dog can be fed it as long as you don't overfeed it. So I don't, I don't want to give the impression that a dog, you know, you're going to eat a bowl of our food and the dog's going to swell up if it wasn't busy enough that day. But uh, you know, it's an active formula. It's geared toward a dog that, that, you know, is pretty active, but I mean, my dogs, it's not like I'm running them 25 miles a day all the time today. They, we maybe spent 15 minutes in the yard doing retrieves, but the rest of the day they're, just like any other dog, they're, you know, laying in the shade or hanging on a couch. So they don't have to be, you know, crazy extreme a- active, but, you know, you just don't want them to be, you know, not active at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and I think we should probably put some perspective on what active means too. You've started to do that a little bit, but, you know, like, you, like you said, in a morning hunt or in a day's work on a ranch with a stock dog, you know, actual consistent work throughout the day, that five mile jog that your human, that the dog's human owner goes on every day is not that many miles for no. compared to what some of these working dogs will do in a day. So even yeah, that, not at all. yeah, it's not necessarily a high activity dog just because it gets out for a jog once a day with its, with its owner. If even that, you know, people will go out and take their dog for a 20 or 30 minute walk. Honestly, that, that's not even a workout for the dog. Now, I don't want to say that it's, that it's bad for the dog. It's better than the dog not doing anything. But for for certain breeds, you know, like your 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 border collies are, those dogs are are built to work. And if they, you know, in a in a household environment, if you're feeding them an active food and not giving them extensive work, uh, they're going to get. Well, number one, they're probably going to get in trouble because they're going to need something to do. Um, and if you don't have a job for them, they're, they'll make one. But um, they're built to be able to metabolize that energy and burn it. So if they're not burning it, it's just going to build up. Um, probably a breed that's been 
you know, it's not as popular nowadays as, it, as it's been historically, but beagles. I mean, you almost always see any beagles that are in the household environment. They're almost all, you know, just round. You know, they're just, mm-hmm. they're, they're too big. Um, whereas if you see a beagle that's actually an active rabbit hunting dog, I mean, they're very lean and muscular and they are a marathon breed. They are built to run miles and miles and miles. So a 20 minute walk three times a week is just not enough to keep that dog conditioned the way that it's, you know, that it's genetics dictate to it. And that's the bigger concern. And you can still benefit from feeding a high quality food, even a high calorie food, but you just have to be much more careful about it Um, because dogs really they'll do better on a high fat diet. Um, when we talk with the marathon runner example, like if you're going to be gearing up to run distance running, you want a carb load. Well, a dog that's going to be doing marathons and I, you know, I'm much when I did a rod dog, they don't want to load them up on carbs. They want to load them up on fat mm. because they'll process fat much more efficiently than anything else they take in. Now you, you still need the protein to help with muscle repair and recovery and stuff like that. But they, you want to fat load those dogs. So the higher the fat content of the diet, the better, but on a dog that's not active, you start putting that in there and you give them, you know, feed them like it's a normal food. They're going to just, you're just pounding calories into them that they don't have any way to burn. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, humans and dogs are, we are built a little differently. So, you know, and part of the problem, you know, going back to your marketing, you know, you don't market to the dog, you market to the people. So when you look at these, you know, you look at these bags and it shows, a, you know, a whole chicken and some carrots and some, you know, some blueberries and stuff <laughs> like that. Most of those, I mean, obviously chicken, you know, protein's great for a dog, but a lot of what you're, you put blueberries into there. Yeah. That's got natural antioxidants, but your dog doesn't, it's not able to use a lot of those raw things in their natural state, the way that we can, they don't break down fibers and fruits and vegetables the same way we do i mean if you think about you know their background a wolf in the wild or something like that and i know our dogs aren't wolves they're they've evolved somewhat from that but you know a lot of times what they would you know they're scavengers and so they will you know if they're desperate they'll eat just about anything but usually if they're you know if, if they have an animal to eat which is their preference they'll start on the soft tissue areas you know they'll they'll get into the gut and a lot of what they get for plant and vegetable matter was already partially broken down. So you feed a dog corn, you're going to get it out in about the same condition as you got it in, you know, <laughs> which you know, you, you'll see that when you go clean up the yard, but they just don't break down a lot of that vegetable matter, but it's, it's included in these diets and it is marketed toward the owner rather than, you know, necessarily being the best thing for the dog. Yeah, and I think through the over the course of our discussion here, we'll talk a lot about you know how things are marketed to people, um, and in kind of how, tools that the industry uses. I think sometimes um, nefarious is the wrong word, but sometimes uh, in a sort of sketchy way to help because they know it will help humans make the decision to buy their food, even if it's not necessarily best for the animal, or it leads the human to be paying a lot for marketing and and not so much for a better quality food. So, but before we get to that, I wanted to hit on a couple of things you mentioned. First, you talked about how your food is designed to be fed in very small amounts. You know, this is, this is pretty hot stuff and you've, it's pretty refined stuff. 
Is that a challenge that you face with your customers? Are, are they just so used to feeding, you know, several cups of food a day that it's hard to get them to understand you just don't need that much of our dog food? And in fact, it can be counterproductive for your dogs. Yeah, it, it that that is, you know, because I, I mentioned earlier, that's probably the greatest risk with a really nutrient dense food is overfeeding. Um, and it, it can be a challenge. I mean, people that have those people that work all the time with their dogs and, and are really, you know, sophisticated in how they look, their feeding and management program where they're really watch it. I mean, I'll, I'll use us as an example or, you know, most of the time when you see a Labrador retriever in a home environment, I won't say they're always overweight, but I bet the percentage of, of Labrador retrievers that are, that are house dogs, it's 85% plus they are over to varying degrees, what would be considered an appropriate uh, weight for that dog if it was going to be active. You know, our, if you look at our dogs, you know, and I'll, I'll get people, why are your dogs so skinny? Because mm. they're in shape, they're conditioned, you know, they are built for what I'm going to do with them, which is upland hunting. So they're going to go out and run 50 miles on a, on a, a day, a full day hunt. And if they're walking around with an extra 15 pounds on them, they're going to get hurt. Um, they're, they're, they're not going to come through it in a healthy manner. So yeah, it is probably the, you know, we'll get people to go, oh, the food's not working. I'd say, and again, no food works for every dog, but nine times out of 10, the, the, the greatest likelihood is it's being overfed or they picked the wrong formula. Um, and this is, we've got one formula. It's our ultra 32 K formula, which is a, you know, 32 protein, 24 fat. Well, it's, it's pretty rocket fuelish. And if you manage that feeding properly, you can feed an embarrassingly small amount of food to even an active dog and they will be super fit, super healthy, get everything they need. But if you, you know, people will naturally go, Oh, that's the highest one. That's the one I need for my dog. Well, there are very few dogs that need that level of energy. Um, so we, we don't even generally give samples of that product out because mm. um, we'll, you know, as part of normal activities, you'll give food samples here and there. Um, we won't even put it in, even put it in, in most cases to a, you know, a regular retail store, because if somebody buys that food and doesn't know how to feed it properly, it's just too much. You know, you're going to get loose stools or a really fat dog. Well, we don't want either of those. <laughs> so um, we'll often just say, hey, this one's available. Um, the people that use it and use it right love it. Um, but if someone doesn't, you know, doesn't feed it properly, it's not right. So let's make that special order. If somebody requests it, they know what they're looking for most times. Right. So then bring it, bring it in. But otherwise, don't even, don't put it on the shelf. We'll use our other three formulas that can feed just about, you know, almost any dog could get along fine with those. Yeah, again, you have that perception. Um, I, I can totally understand why you don't put that on the shelves of the in the farm stores and that sort of thing, because you have that perception of, I want the best for my dog. My dog is an active breed. I think I'm pretty active. I'm going to assume that the Ultra 32K is also at least as expensive as your other bags, other formulas of food, if not more. Yeah, it's a bit more. Yeah, you know, that there are people who, if it's there, they will buy it because it's the most expensive one. 
because <laughs> they perceive the 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 ultra on the label to be like the best food um and and so you really kind of have to reserve that for folks who have defined specific needs for their dogs yes and are really i mean almost scientific about how they manage their dog's feeding program you know and, and you know even it says on the bag you know the afco and Amer american association of feed control officials is kind of the regulatory body that that um, for lack of a better term dictates how labeling should look you know what should be on the label and how is it on there um, ours specifically says on our our power 30k and our ultra 32k formulas um, they're all life stage formulas so you can feed them to any any age of dog however it's not recommended for puppies of large breed and the definition of large breed in the in the regulatory requirements is 70 pounds or larger at adulthood so what that is basically meaning is the the nutrients in that food would probably or if if not carefully managed could be problematic for a dog say a giant you know a larger giant breed dog would probably grow too quickly um, not just, you know, physically weight wise and height wise, but, you know, even the joint and ligament and, and tendon development um, because of the, of the calcium and phosphorus and things in there um, would probably develop too quickly and cause some problems for the dog. So um, just had a conversation with one of our pro trainers and, and handlers um, this week. He's like, I want to use that on my puppies. He says, I, I really like it on my adult dogs. And I said, well, you can, you know, first of all, you know how to feed it. You know, he's really mm -hmm. careful about how he feeds his dogs and his dogs are, you know, at maturity, maybe get, uh, they're English pointers. So, I mean, a, a large male in his line might get up to 60 or 65 pounds. Um, but as a rule, they're going to generally run 50 to 60 pounds. So knowing that he knows how to feed this to puppies and he knows his genetics and, you know, how big they're going to get, it's perfectly healthy and acceptable for him to feed that to his dogs as puppies but you know it i wouldn't be confident you know telling just anybody to feed that to any puppy because it's you know it, it's not geared for them and that's you know one of the unique things about our product line and i don't i don't think anybody else does this um all four of our existing formulas have the exact same ingredients so they have from the, from the first to the last they're the exact same things in every one, um, just different levels of protein, fat, carbohydrates, um, and other certain, you know, certain pieces. Um, but we do that so that you can adjust in even, you know, cold turkey. I can switch my dogs from our active formula to our power formula from one meal to the next. And because they've been getting those same ingredients, uh, they don't have an adjustment period, so I don't have to mix it or blend it or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But we did that by design because my dogs in particular, when they're hunting and during the hunting season, when they might have to go out and run 50 miles a day for two or three days straight, um, I want to be able to put more calories in them, you know, more protein and fat, um, fat in particular, but I don't want to have to feed them a bunch more food. So I can you know, when I'm ramping up and getting ready for the season, I'll switch them off of our active formula into the power formula and get them more calories um, without having to put more mass in their stomach. 
and right. not have to transition it. So I don't have to worry about, you know, I'm going to have a week long period where they're adjusting and they're getting dehydrated because they got loose stools and stuff like that. You can just switch them cold turkey. Okay. So same ingredients, just in different proportions from formula Absolutely. to formula. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating because I was going to ask you about, you know, what do you do with weekend warriors? What do you do with, um, well, you know, I'm tempted to, to talk hunting dogs because that's the best example. We've got lots and lots of bird hunters in the U.S. that, you know, spend very little time during the week or even throughout most of the year um, putting their dogs in really active situations, demanding a lot from them. But then come Saturday morning, you know, we, we got it. We expect it to kick into gear Saturday morning in October. Um, but the same could be said for the stock dog world. You know, we have folks who are running their dogs every day on ranch work, getting things done all day long. But we also have a lot of folks who, you know, they maybe each dog gets a 25 minute training session every day and mm -hmm. then they go to the trial on the weekend. So do you, what do you recommend to those folks? I mean, that's just life. Uh, we'd all like to have the, you know, be able to spend, uh, eight hours a day working with our dogs, like, um, a ranch owner does, but I, I don't think that's reality. What do you recommend for somebody as far as should they ramp up? Should they be on one formula during the week and then on Friday kick into another formula? Should they do it, it divide into different the year into different segments depending on how busy they are with the trial season, for example? How do we how do we cope with that? That is generally what we do. I'd say, I mean, for a day or two a week when you're changing activity level, I wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't switch diets. I would, I would say, if you're doing that all the time, keep them on the higher protein diet all the time, um, or the higher fat diet, really more importantly, and just you can adjust the amount slightly because I mean, one or two days of activity is not going to really run that dog down too badly. Um, four or five days, it's it, it'll it'll take a toll on on even a conditioned dog. So I would say in that circumstance, if the dog is pretty active, you you can feed the the higher fat diet, but just less of it. Um, but I think in most cases, they're probably better off to feed the lower fat, you know, get down. And again, none of ours are low fat, but I right. think if you got something with the 15 or 16% fat in it for the dog, that's going to be the weekend warrior, stay on that one. And if you need to, if you need to give them a little bit more, um, when you're making them more active for a couple of days, you can do that, but generally one or two days, the most important thing is make sure they're hydrated. Mm. Um, they're more likely to suffer from injury due to not being properly conditioned or dehydration. So I think in, in that case, if they're properly conditioned, you're not worried about them, you know, straining a muscle or something like that. Just make sure they're really thoroughly hydrated okay. um, and leave the diet alone because for a couple of days, it's not worth making a change. You don't, you don't, it take, it can take a while for the dog to acclimate for, um, say an adjustment of fat in their diet. You really, you know, like we talked about carb loading for a, for a marathon runner, it takes a while for that dog to start, you know, the metabolism to adjust to that higher fat level. I would say probably three to four weeks at a minimum before, I see before you really see the benefits of that. And it could be as much as six to eight. So if you're going to make a long-term change, like you know, again, like a hunting dog is a great example, or let's say you've had a puppy, um, for your, for your working dogs and you're not working them as hard when they're puppies, but they get to a certain age and you say, well, this dog is going to become, you know, actively working all the time, or at least for extended periods of three to four months, then I think you can make that change. 
Okay. All right. That helps. Um, I, I think of dog food primarily as fuel, but back in the earlier part of our conversation, we were talking about the stresses that a dog goes through, like the, you know, diving into the water and that sort of thing. Um, how should I be thinking about dog food only as fuel or should I be thinking about it as re as recovery also? I think about making sure they have that energy to do the work, but I don't know that I've ever given much thought to how stressful that is on the dog's body and how it needs good dog food to recover from that as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, one of our key things when you'll see, I mean, if you look at a bag of our food, there are like six, we call them brand pillars. Um, but there are six things that we try to achieve with our dog food. Um, and one of them is absolutely rapid recovery because, I mean, we, if your dog is going to go out and really work hard, they need really bioavailable protein um, to help with the recovery process. I mean, just uh, humans, you think about, and there are all these protein powders, you can make protein shakes and everything. What you, and the reason they do that after workout, and you usually want to wait 45 to 60 minutes, um, but you want that protein to kick in at that point. Um, and that's what you use. You Anytime you work that muscle hard, you're breaking it down. And that's true for dogs as much as people. So you want bioavailable protein um, to be able to help that dog recovery with repair and replenishment of that muscle. Um, and one of the things, and I don't want to give any, any, any big secrets away, but you think about um, cramping and um, muscle soreness and things of that nature. Um, what do we always tell people? Well, eat bananas and it helps you with, you know, helps you avoid cramping. Well, it's not because bananas are some magical pill. It's, it's the potassium. So um, a specific diet geared toward recovery is going to be a bit higher in potassium than maybe your maintenance level diet. So that's, that's another example of something that if you're really gearing that food toward an active animal, um, avoiding that stiffness and soreness the next day is a part of that. So higher levels of potassium, I mean, every single ingredient we put into these, and, and I've got the list of when we were initially making these, it's like, all right, what do we want to address? All right, then we need these ingredients in there and they're performing this role within that diet. And, you know, potassium is a good example that's easily relatable to people because you all go, oh yeah, well, I have a banana, you know, it's supposed to help you avoid cramping and stuff like that. Well, that's why you want to get that potassium in there. So it's definitely there from um, recovery. And I'd say there are other components where, you know, other than just fuel, you know, overall health, you take a multivitamin or you may not, a lot of people do, I do. And I'm pretty selective about um, what kind of multivitamin I'll get because you'll get a vitamin, a mineral complex. Um, we use, and you've, I'm sure you've heard the term with your background, uh, chelated minerals. We only use chelated minerals. So if it's a mineral that comes in a chelated form, which is basically an organic uh, it's an organic mineral attached to uh, a carbon, usually an amino acid or protein, so that they can absorb it more readily. Because if you use the inorganic form, they're a lot cheaper um, and you can put them in there, you know, in a plentiful manner, but they don't get digested because, and I don't want to get too technical because number one, I'll lose you. And number two, I'll probably lose myself. But um, uh, basically, you know, when a mineral goes into the, into the digestive process, if it can't attach to a carbon atom, like an amino acid, if there's not one readily available, it just keeps on going through. So the, the body doesn't absorb it. But if it already comes pre-attached to one, the likelihood that it's going to be absorbed by, you know, by the dog or the, or the person, you know, is, is anywhere from, it depends 
study you look at and which um, which type of biology you were dealing with, human, um, cow, pig, horse, dog, uh, anywhere from two to five times more likely to be absorbed. So rather than those minerals just going in and passing through and, and ending up on your grass, they'll actually absorb them at anywhere from two to five times higher of a rate. So they are more expensive, but they're also more likely to get used by um, whoever is taking them in. So that's why if you're going to spend any money, it's like getting an extra a multivitamin in the bag of food. Look for that on your dog food bag. Are these chelated minerals? Are these the regular old? And the way you can tell the difference is, does it say, you know, uh, zinc amino acid chelate or zinc proteinate, which proteinate basically means it's attached to a protein. Or does it say zinc sulfite or zinc, zinc sulfate or zinc oxide or something like that? Because those are the cheap inorganic versions and I'm not saying they don't help at all. You know, getting the mineral, it's still helpful, but you're just not going to get it at a very high rate. Mm -hmm. And chelated, uh, I want to say that's C-H-E-L-A-T-E. -E? Yes, chelated. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yep. But it starts with a C-H. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, look for that. Um, and that you, you kind of started to just do something I was going to ask you to do anyway, which is describe tell us more about what bioavailability means. And so bioavailability is the, just the body's ability to capture those nutrients, be they minerals or protein or anything in the food that you put in there to benefit the dog. Yeah. So yeah, bioavailable. And it's kind of a catch all term, but it basically is it, the chelated minerals are a great example. You can put it into the putting something into the digestive process doesn't mean it's likely to get absorbed. So the more bioavailable nutrients, and it's not just vitamins and minerals, um, the more likely they are to actually be absorbed by the dog rather than pass through the digestive process. And, 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 you know, and bioavailability again, for us is we're feeding less, you know, our goal was to feed, to get the most out of the food, by, but still be able to feed less. So, we tried to approach everything by using the most bioavailable form. So, you know, your more bioavailable proteins, your more bioavailable fats. And, you know, a, a good rule of thumb when it comes to dogs is if it's animal based, if it's a protein or a fat that's animal based, it's far more likely to be bioavailable to a dog than any plant based version of that. So if I were to put fish oil in the diet versus uh, coconut oil a dog is going to get more benefit out of the fish oil than it is out of the coconut oil because they are just naturally predisposed to be able to absorb animal-based nutrients uh, more effectively and more efficiently so and that's where and then and this is a the protein one is a great example of what you talked about a little earlier not necessarily it's you know I, I won't say it's misleading, but uh, there are ways to, you know, we are required to list four things on the bag with regard to guarantees. You have to guarantee the protein, the fat, the fiber, and the moisture. Now, I can reach that protein guarantee. There are calculations. And so I can say, you know, you're building that formula. You go, oh, if I put this much of this and this much of this in there, my system based on the pro protein levels in the ingredients that I put in are going to say, I got 30% protein, 20% um, fat, 4% moisture, or 4% fiber, 10% moisture. Um, and the moisture really comes out in the manufacturing process. So you just, 
that's really a longevity thing. But I can get to that 30% protein by putting in corn, or I can get to that 30% protein by putting in chicken meal. But if I put in chicken meal, you know, that dog's going to absorb, you know, more than 80% of that protein, or, you know, it's more than 80% bioavailable to a dog. The corn, on the other hand, the protein in that, while, uh, you know, a cow may absorb the protein out of that corn very well, a dog is probably in the, oh, I would say mid forties, mid to upper forties, the protein that will, that a dog will absorb from corn. So we, we didn't, you know, we, we, we try to limit any amount of protein that's going to come from the grains, um, that might be included in a diet. And we want to focus on getting, you know, high 80s 90 plus percent of the protein from animal based ingredients you know probably the best one and you always hear that you know it's probably came from the egg council or something nature's perfect protein you know eggs are fantastic um that it's about as it's about as bioavailable as you'll get from a protein standpoint so you know any food with some egg in there you know well they're at least getting that much that's super mm-hmm. bioavailable i mean it's like 90 percent bioavailable it's really really high mm-hmm is there any beneficial role for grains in a dog food? Absolutely. Um, they're still a they're still a very good carb source. Um, so we don't want our grains to be the protein source in the food, but they they're a good source of carbohydrates. You don't want a really hard high carbohydrate diet for a dog. Like I said, they 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 fat load um, to 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 do endurance activities or even speed activities. It's better for them to do to use fat, but I mean, there's a, there's a component of it where number one, they still, they still use carbohydrates. Um, but number two, you almost need some type of starch in there just to form the food, you know, cause mm-hmm. you're, you're baking a food and you, you know, good luck baking a cookie without flour. Well, it's kind of the same thing with a, a biscuit or, or a dog food kibble. You need something in there to kind of be a binding agent and carbohydrates are really, you know, a, a great, um, it, it's both, a, it can provide some nutrition, but also provides that binding agent. So there are certain grains we, you know, we try to avoid, not necessarily that they're inherently bad. Um, and I'd say corn is, a, is, is, you know, it's, it's pointed out as an evil in, in the dog world. There's nothing inherently bad about corn, especially if your goal with using corn is as your carbohydrate source. There's, there's nothing inherently bad for it. The, the challenge that we have with corn is it's a macro grain grown here in the U.S. I mean, we grow corn everywhere. So there's a there's different blends of corn in you know Washington State versus here in Iowa um, versus Texas. So you don't you just don't know what you're gonna get. You don't you don't know what you're gonna get from what type of corn it was um, because it's different. You know you you got different hybrids all over the place. But you also don't know what you're gonna get from the environmental impact on where that corn came from. Did it come from a real dry, arid area? Did it come from, you know, a more cool, moist area? And you just, there's just such variability in corn. We try to avoid it just to limit risk. Um, mm-hmm. we, you know, can we concentrate it into something that we know we're going to get more consistency out of? And so again, there's nothing inherently wrong with it as a carbohydrate source. It's fine. Um, we just, we just we don't we like to control what we can control with regard to the qual, and that gets a little too variable. Sure. Okay. Um, I'm chomping at the bit to ask you uh, your thoughts about episode number forty six, which you told me you listened to, but I got yes. one more question before that. Um, 
our audience is often working with um, stock dogs, herding dogs, uh, as working dogs on their farms and ranches. But another common one for us, us folks is livestock guardian dogs. So I don't know if you know a lot about livestock guardian dogs, but I'm a, always a little bit um, uncertain how to feed my livestock guardian dogs. So these are large, typically pretty large dogs that are used for predator protection or protection right. from predators for sheep and goats primarily, also um, chicken sometimes. Um, these dogs are big, so they're kind of expensive to feed. We usually have a lot of them, so that makes us want to buy a less expensive dog food. And during the day especially, they do not look like very active dogs. But when they have to perform, they have to perform. And in a predator-rich environment, that can keep them up busy at night. So I wonder if you might have some advice on, do those dogs qualify as active dogs? Do they, would they benefit from your dog foods? Um, and, and, and how do we know what to feed them? Yes. Um, so you're thinking like, like a great Pyrenees, for example, something like that, or various yeah. Mastiff breeds, stuff like that. Correct. Yeah. Great Pyrenees is one that lots of people know. Um, Correct. Maremma, all sorts of guardian dog breeds, but these are typically big, fluffy white dogs, right? <laughs> that, yeah. that live with the sheep. Yeah. So what, and we, we do feed a number of those. Um, what we have typically found people to be happiest about are to be at the higher range of our, of our diets um, and just not feed as much. Because oh. like you said, they are very large dogs. Um, they need a certain amount of they need a certain caloric intake just to just to maintain that that size of um the the size that they are so but if you feed them a low quality food you're gonna have to feed them a bunch to maintain so we actually find that people like to do like our 30 20 formula or even the 32 24 and wow. just not feed very much um We've even like people with house, like Great Danes, you know, very similar thing. Now, the benefit to that is you, you know, our foods are, they're kind of, they're very nutrient dense. So they're still going to get what they need, but they're going to also use a lot more of it and they're going to put out a lot less waste. Cause that's the other thing with these dogs. You feed them enough to maintain them, you might get a very big pile of stool <laughs> or yeah. lots of them. Um, right. But again, the risk with those dogs, you just, you know, they're, they are very big. So if you overfeed, you don't want them overweight. You want them to be fit to the point where when they need to act and be active and, and, you know, chase, fight, whatever, they're, they're fit enough to do that. Mm -hmm. So yes, we do feed some of those. And I would, I mean, I would almost always, if your dog is, is active at all, feed a better food, feed less of it. Okay. Um, you're really better off because it's, you know, it, I would hundred percent agree with you. There's an awful lot of there's an awful lot of marketing that you're paying for in a lot of these brands, um, but you're not going to get the better vitamins and minerals and things in the cheap food, you know, the, and I'm not going to name any brands. We don't like to knock anybody else, but you know, there's a level, there's a level of consumer for pretty much every level of quality of dog food. There are some people that are just not going to spend more than 20 or $25 for a big bag of dog food. They're not. Mm -hmm. I would never do that. I know what's in there. Um, it'll keep a dog alive, but it's never going to thrive. I want my dogs to be healthy. Um, as, as you do, I ask a lot of them when I need them to do something. So I want them healthy. And even if they weren't doing anything, I just want them healthy anyway, because I want them to live as long as they possibly can. 
Right. Um, cause you know, we love our dogs, but so I, I, even when we, when we didn't have the company before we started the company, I wasn't buying $25 bag of dog food because I know that it's not very good. Um, well, I'll put it, it's not as good as, as I'd like it to be. It's not, you know, it's just like you, would you get hamburger from McDonald's or you can, you know, raise your own or go to a really good butcher shop and get good quality meat. Um, you're going to be better off getting, paying the extra and getting, you know, real beef. <laughs> so mm -hmm. similar philosophy. Yeah. There's an added complexity with livestock guardian dogs in that many of them are out on somewhat remote pastures and they're being feed, fed with self feeders. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that may be just a problem we can't, we can't overcome. I know that if a dog, if, let me ask you this, I was going to presume something, but if a dog is used to being fed a large volume of food, if you change their dog food to something much more high, higher quality that they don't have to eat a large volume of, will they self-adjust or is there any potential that they will self-adjust to that smaller volume because they're getting everything they need or will they just gorge on it because they're used um, to being fed a large volume of food? The answer is yes. Depends on the dog. I yeah, mean, okay. some dogs will, some dogs you could free feed all the time and they will self-moderate. They go, Oh, I'm, I'm full. You know, that, that smaller but meatier portion of food that I got is enough. Um, and they're not hungry, but you know, there are dogs that, Hey, I usually put this much in my stomach and I'm going to put that much in, even if it's higher calorie, they'll do that. And some dogs, I, I got one dog, one of my, they're, they're more driven by hunt or play, but one of them is just the absolute most food motivated dog in the world. She would do anything for food. So I, she would probably eat herself to death if, if we just mm. free fed her. She just, yeah. just some dogs are that way. Well, the, the self-feeding on a commercial ranch is about labor savings and um, ultimately profit. And so if it can be demonstrated that feeding a much smaller volume of a much higher quality food helps the dogs perform better, is good for the bottom line, then, you know, you might be able to justify going out and limit feeding those dogs on a regular mm -hmm. basis too. So it's, it's just, as with all things related to livestock guardian dogs, it's complicated. I would, um, I'd love to ask you about episode 46. You said you listened to it. It was me being a little bit snarky about the dog food industry. And I was thrilled to find that you had read it, that you had <laughs> listened to it. Um, it was an attempt to take the information that's readily available to consumers and help them, uh, basically a strategy for arriving at a side-by-side -side price comparison. Um, I tried to avoid the topic of quality, bioavailability, you know, and just start from the position that a one of our listeners has decided this formula is good, this formula is good, this formula is good from three different brands. How can I compare the prices and determine which of those acceptable dog foods is um, the least expensive? And so I wonder what... Tell me what I did right. Tell me what is completely wrong about that approach. Tell me what is fair and unfair. And give our listeners your advice on finding a dog food that's a good value. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you did a lot right with that. 
and I've looked at you have your dog food calculator that you could you could download. And I think and I, I think I mentioned to you directionally, it is a useful tool um, because there's really no way to know all, you know, like, are you going to is is the typical person or, or even the atypical person going to go down and read that ingredient list and go, hmm, I'm going to go out and search for every single ingredient on there and estimate bioavailability and all that. Well, nobody has the number one, the time it, to do it. And the other thing is some of that information just isn't readily available. And mm -hmm. I know that can be frustrating. Um, you know, it, it's it definitely can be frustrating to people. Go, well, how do I get that answer? Well, in most cases, people don't, it's not published because in some cases they don't want it to be known. Um, cause if I was making, and I'm, again, I won't mention any, anything specific, but if I was making a crappy dog food, I wouldn't want you to know how crappy it was. So mm -hmm. I don't want you to know that, you know, that corn gluten meal is not a good, you know, as good a protein source as, as egg, you know, egg protein meal. Um, but some of it's just, it would be too complex of a message to try to communicate to a wider audience exactly everything that goes into calculating everything like that. And then back to the earlier point that, that you made in the podcast and that I mentioned on this one is every dog is a little bit different. So um, a food that works may work just fantastically well for one dog um, may work very poorly for another, even, I mean, I've got two dogs out of the same litter and they are just built different. You know, mm -hmm. they're, they're about the same size. They're both yellow lab females. I, I like smaller, um, leaner dogs because I do upland hunting and I want them to be able to be lean and run all day. But if you look at them side by side, they're not built the same. They're, they're, the color is a little bit different. They're, they're just their shape. One's longer and leaner and, and looser, um, kind of a looser, more fluid form. The other one's stockier and more muscular. That happens to be the one that would eat herself to death if if I let her. <laughs> but they react differently. One of you know they they're like us. But they, our metabolisms may not be the same. Um, our needs may not be the same. We might go into a kennel and our food will work fantastically for 28 out of the 30 dogs in there. But there are two dogs that are just you know either exceptionally different um, for whatever reason. Or they just don't respond well to something in the diet. Now, it might not be an allergy or anything. It could just be our blend doesn't work that well. Like I said, we we tend to be more of a lower, a higher protein, lower fiber. Um, we like more starch with less fiber because of the nature of the dogs we're feeding. But some dogs just might need more fiber in order to maintain, you know, their level of health um, for their digestive process, and some don't. So. I don't want to get too far off the track, but I would say what what your what your tool does is it gives you a good common ground, a common starting point to say, yep, these are roughly the calories um, that you're going to get on a price per on a price per pound or price per calorie. Um, what you can't get to is when you actually feed the product, how does the dog absorb it? How does it work in the dog? Um, and one of the things I mentioned to you, calculated values, and we, we talked about that a little bit earlier about, you know, protein sources, how it's a calculation. Mm. Well, those calories, those calorie counts are also a calculation. That's one other thing you have uh -huh. to put on the package. So you may look, you may look at two foods side by side, and one says it's a 30% protein, 20% fat. The other one says the same thing, but their calorie values might vary by five ten percent when you go well, how could that be well number one they're the calculations that 
there, there are more than one calculation that you can get that you can use or, or test to determine those calories, but they all should be fairly close. But even if they are dead on, they might both say, well, at 30 protein, 20 fat, they're both 500 calories, but it doesn't get to the bioavailability piece, which is, you know, so the calories got calculated, but you don't know what the dog can actually use. So you might put their, them to feed those foods in there and they both say they're 500 calories, but one of those dogs or one of those foods is not going to be that well absorbed. So a lot of those calories don't go to work for the dog. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're eating it, but they're going to pass it. They're not absorbing it. So it's useful. It's not, right. you know, it's not something I'd hang my hat on unless you saw two foods that were almost identical makeup and they had really close calculations. Mm-hmm. And that that's an important critique of the calculator that I put together and, and my approach to side-by-side pricing um, several dog foods. And so uh, farm dog audience, if you want, you can download that spreadsheet. It's at, uh, it's on the website, farmdogpodcast.com, but it, it leans heavily on the calorie content of those foods because that's what's on the bag and re- readily available to consumers. Um, yes. you, you just don't have very many options to work with. Uh, well, and that's better than just looking at the protein and fat levels. Cause at least, you know, they did have to use math and arrive yeah. at that calculation. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you can, you can take a lot of liberties with what did you use to get to that 30% protein? And that's where I would say, you know, you talked a little bit about it, you know, and it's not always necessarily a miss, you know, well, well, not intentionally, um, nefarious or, or meant to be harmful. I mean, I don't think there's any dog food company out there that's trying to hurt dogs. Sure. But there are ways that you can get, you can meet the guarantees and you can keep the dog, I would say, uh, to a certain level of health, but not do the best thing you can for the dog because doing the best thing you can for the dog is just like for you and me, it's going to be more expensive. Better ingredients are going to cost more. So if I can meet the guarantees and I can do it in such a way that the dog will maintain at least an acceptable level of health, but not necessarily an optimal level of health, um, companies will do that. Now, and they're perfectly within their, you know, that within the legal and regulatory um, requirements to do so. However, you're not going to convince me that they don't know that their product is not as good as it could be mm-hmm. now again I, and our product isn't the absolute you know i could i'm sure we could make improvements to our product if we had unlimited resources and assumed all the consumers had unlimited resources to pay for them but how do you get the best food honestly my and i'm i'm biased so take it you know take it for what it is the biggest brands are probably more likely to spend more on marketing um, than the more regional um, or privately held smaller brands. So in order to compete with the, the, we'll call them the macro brands, and I won't mention any names, but you'll, I mean, people will know who they are. Mm -hmm. We have to put more, we have to put, we have to be better. Our products have to be better Um, because if we're sitting on the same shelf side by side with a, with a, a brand that's spent, you know, 10. The only way we're going to be able to compete with them is by giving you better product because we're not going to outspend them. Um, we're not going to be out, be able to outship them or out manufacture them. So I would say the, you know, if, if you can find a, 
you know, I'm not an, a national brand that's really um, more privately held, less corporately owned. You're probably going to find someone that's trying to be better on the nutrition side because they really can't be better on the on the spending side. You know, they, as far as, well, I can't spend more marketing than than some huge conglomerate, so I'm going to beat them at the nutrition game. So mm-hmm. that is that has been my experience um, when I was when I was buying someone else's product, but because I, we didn't have a product, that's how I sourced um, my food. Okay. So it was, a, it was a private brand, you know, a privately owned company um, from the Midwest that I thought they made a good product and they were definitely had commitment to quality. However, you don't see their ads on TV because they right. don't do them. But right. I, you know, I was more concerned with what I was paying for that was in the bag rather than paying for a name that was on the bag. Mm-hmm. But that can be hard to know too. I mean, right. It's, it's, it's easy for me to say, but it's hard to know. Another major component of that spreadsheet that I put together that you can download at farmdogpodcast.com is the feeding size. Uh, because simply an expensive, what looks like an expensive bag of dog food can turn out to have a, a lot more meals in it than the cheaper bag next to it. It's just got, because you're feeding a smaller amount. Um, but that actually is a wobbly part of my analysis too, because it doesn't appear that there are any industry standards on like the weight range of the dog that you apply the different feeding amounts in. And there is a ton of like, it feels like sneaky variability that can be tucked into that label um, to keep, to prevent you from making a very, a very good apples to apples comparison on price. Um, So am I right? There's no regulatory standards on how that, the feeding amounts need to be presented? No, they need to, they need to be fairly accurate um, from the perspective of your food. But like you mentioned, and I, and I would say this is a case where it might look like it's sneaky, but it, it's, it, there are, there's a good intent behind how those things are all different and how there are ranges as opposed to trying to be specific. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, for, for example, if you looked at our bags, they're all roughly the same. I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty much the same on each bag, but we take the same approach. But we also, we're big on instructing you, hey, if you got this kind of dog, and if, you'll see even on our bag that says it's, an, or even on our website, if you want to go to it, you know, this active 26K formula is intended to be used for a dog doing this level of activity this many times a week. So we try to structure ours toward how the dog, I, I don't care what the breed is. If the dog is an active breed, that's burning calories and being very active. If it's doing it this much, you probably need this formula and here's a range. And the reason it's a range is because like we talked about earlier, every dog is so different. I can, I can feed two dogs the same amount and one of them it's too much and one of them it's not enough. Um, We've had people say, well, our base feeding guarantee on our puppy food is an adult it, it's it's in adult and then it says after that um if it's puppies feed you know may, you may feed two to three times that amount and i've had people go what are you an idiot why did you why did you put an adult feeding guideline on a puppy food well there's an amazing number of people that continue to feed their adult food to you know their their puppy food to adults um I, as a matter of fact i'm feeding our puppy you know our puppy formula to my labs right now 
um, because it's, mm. it's all life stage and it's appropriate for that. But if, if I put a puppy feeding guideline on that thing and they feed at that level to their adult dog, they will be enormous. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we would rather err on the side of caution than have, you know, a situation where you go, Hey, my 50 pound dog is now 90 pounds. Thanks for the, right. thanks for the feeding guidelines. But there, it has to be arranged because there is no way for me to judge what your dog is going to need. So we think we say eh, it should be between these yeah. rails, and you got to watch it. I mean, you got to watch it. We adjust our dogs' feeding on a regular basis, and I mean, we might adjust it each week. Mm. And you got you the best measurement for how much food that dog should get is your eyes, right? Because your dog is different than my dog. The, the most frustrating thing is when you flip that bag of dog food over at the store and it says you have a, if you have a 60 to 85 pound dog, it should be between this many cups and this many cups. That's a that, really like, that's not very helpful. You no, know, that's a lot. That's a big range. <laughs> right. Right. And I've actually seen some foods like that. Tell me, are there any uh, red flags that uh, consumers that our listeners should look for? Like, if what's a large amount of dog food that you should feed per day, if I've got a 40 pound dog and it says that dog needs four to five cups a day, like, can that be a warning that that's not a very good food? Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I would say, and, and again, every, I'll always caveat this with it. every dog is different. So if your dog needs more, you know, I, I understand that those dogs exist, but if, if you're getting more than a cup per day of 20 per 20 pounds of body weight for an adult dog. Okay. That's, that's a lot of food. Okay. So if you got an 80 pound dog, now I'm not saying that there aren't any that need it. So please don't, don't anybody say, well, I'm feeding four and a half cups and my dog's 70 pounds. That guy's full of it. Well, I, every dog is a little bit different, but a good rule of thumb, and it could be plus or minus a bit, but a good rule of thumb that we use is about a cup per day per 20 pounds of body weight. Okay. And it can be higher, you know, the, it'll be lower for dogs way over that. It could be, or it can be higher for dogs smaller than that. Cause typically the smaller, you know, like uh, my, my good friend here just lives a, a, about a mile away. He's got a, he's got a young Brittany hunting dog and she's about 25 pounds well i guarantee you she's eating more than my 50 pound labs because she's still she's still a bit younger than them and she is a pocket rocket if you don't you know she just mm -hmm. needs more so that rule won't hold for the outliers but as right. a general rule of thumb it's a pretty good starting place and then as always you know your eyes use your eyes watch i want to see a little bit of rib on my dogs i don't i don't want them to look like they're wearing an insulated coat I want to see some ribs. So use your eyes. Keep an eye on that dog. You, sh you should see some tuck back near the haunches. You should be able to stand over top and see that their hip, you know, their hips and their flanks stick out farther than their waist. Mm -hmm. So look at that dog and, and monitor them. But that's a good starting point. Okay. Yeah, that's really helpful because it's not hard to find many formulas of dog food that will ask you to feed a lot more than that. So that's that can be a good thing for us to look for. John, I have taken a lot of your time today and I really appreciate you giving it to me. Is there anything you'd like to call our audience's attention to some place where they can find more more uh, information about kinetic dog food, maybe an event coming up or some program you're sponsoring? What's going on with kinetic? 
Yeah. So, well, first of all, I'll get it out there. The website is www.kineticdogfood.com, K-I-N-E-T-I-C, dogfood.com. Um, yeah. And you know what? If if somebody has questions, I mean, we, we put information out there. We don't bury you in it, but we do also have a lot of um, a lot of little blog posts and stuff like that, talking about feeding dogs and feeding working dogs versus a regular dog and things like that. But I mean, we do, a, as far as, <clears throat> you know, if someone's got specific questions, absolutely info at kineticdogfood.com. Um, you can email us and we, we will respond, um, to any specific questions. Um, there's a place on the website you want to, Hey, I want to go try a bag. There's all, you know, you can put in your zip code and find nearby locations. Um, but yeah, we're doing events all the time. So we don't always, I mean, our Facebook page is probably the best place to see where, where we're at for events, but we do, like I said, we do seminars, we do trade shows, we go out and do individual classes for sometimes for veterinarians, sometimes for police departments. We feed a lot of police and military dogs um, in addition to the hunting and other working dogs. So we spend a lot of time at those types of events. Um, I tell you one we'll, we'll, we'll be at here. It's, it's not too far away for you. Um, game fair is a big, if you're an outdoors, if you're hunting types, it's a big outdoor thing in, in the twin city area in August, it's in two week on two different weekends, but that's a good one, um, to just go out and do some fun doggy games with your dogs. And we always have a booth up there and we hang out with, um, four points retrievers, which is a, a North American hunting retriever club. And we, we do, uh, a timed, a timed water retrieve. So that's fun, but yeah, we're. If you follow our Facebook, you'll see we're going a whole lot of different directions. We've probably had a, a hundred or so events a year. So, but yeah, if anybody actually just wanted to get some information or are having an event, um, stock dog things, we, we are getting more involved in that. Um, and uh, as you know, Jacqueline, uh, Jacqueline Tinker, um, yep. we're, we're participating in the, um, the Australian, the Aussie nationals here, um, this fall. So, we go to field trials and hunt tests and, and docking event, dock events. We're going to be at, I know my personal dogs will be jumping, doing some dock diving here at Cedar Rapids here in a, in a couple months. So cool. that's something, you know, we weren't spending enough money on, on hunting our dogs. So my <laughs> wife decided we, well, she wanted something to do too. So we're, we're doing dock diving now too. And I got one that just loves it. <laughs> just, she's a maniac. So that's cool. Yeah, very well, anything, exciting. Anything you can do fun with your dogs, do it. You know, Absolutely. That's, that's the thing. Absolutely. And you mentioned Jackie. A quick shout out to Jackie Tinker, um, who is, I was frantically looking here for a past episode. We actually in, um, interviewed Jackie in episode nine, and Jackie actually introduced me to John. Uh, recently. So thank you so much, Jackie, for the connection. You can find uh, Jackie at Ar Arcadia Working Aussies, uh, stockdogtrainer.com, and check out episode nine. Really appreciate it, Jackie, and really appreciate it, John. Thanks so much for your time today and for the good conversation. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Farm Dog. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, Please subscribe, leave us a positive review, and tell someone about it. Thanks.